Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time in God's word. Our gracious Father, we are promised as we were just rehearsing this biblical truth that if we hold on to Christ, that if we focus on him, if as the author of Hebrews says, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will never be moved because he is sure, steady, perfect, righteous, forever true. And so may we do that as we open up your truth. Help us, Father, to once again behold Christ and his work in us by your spirit and conform us to the image of Christ as we wait for his coming. As we look forward to that day when faith will become sight. Oh Lord, I pray, fix eternity in our minds because when we think about eternal things, when we think about Christ coming, we tend to behave differently. Lord, I pray, help us. With this in mind, serve one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning once again. Praise the Lord for gathering us here. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 4 1 Peter chapter 4. You know, we've all heard some variation of the question, if today was your last day on earth, what would you do? You know, the, the, the question is designed to get us thinking about what truly matters and what doesn't. It's helpful to consider. But the last day question is also very paralyzing, isn't it? What would I do? I mean, it's overwhelming to consider all the things that could possibly be done on that last day or preparation to your final day. I mean, how do we decide even what is most effective or impactful or most God-honoring right, thing to do before we enter eternity? I mean, think about it. Is it better to sneak into, like in today's environment, is it better to sneak into Afghanistan and, and to preach the gospel of Christ on your last day or... Is it better to gather all of your unbelieving friends here in the Sacramento area and preach the gospel to them? What's better? I mean, I have no idea how to answer that question. So, so I think in, in pondering what would I do on my last day, I think instead of asking the question, if today was your last day, what would you do? I think we should be asking ourselves, does being prepared for the second coming of Christ involve some grand act of obedience or not? And according to Peter's passage here for us this morning, his answer is, it does not. It does not. Peter is writing to believers who are going through severe persecution. 
They are suffering unjustly for their faith. And, and Peter writes to encourage and to build them up and to remind them of their responsibility, even in the midst of suffering. Friends, church, you have God-given responsibility regardless of what you're going through. And Peter is writing, let me encourage you. And the main idea of this particular letter here is this, through your unjust suffering, remain obedient to Christ, following his example and trusting his glorious plan of salvation, even if some of you will end up dying. And so we're jumping right there, kind of in the middle towards the end into chapter four of his epistle where Peter reminds them, Christians, remember what time it is. Remember what time it is. And his basic answer is this. It is time to remain faithful to Christ by fervently loving and serving each other. That's it. Nothing extraordinary, no grand task, like go and do this, go and, I don't know, die for Christ. He's not even calling them to do that. He's just basically saying, in the midst of this suffering, remain faithful to Christ by fervently loving and serving one another. So let's jump in. Let's read, beginning with verse one of chapter four, one through, and we'll read through 11, okay? So if you have your Bibles open, please follow along. First Peter chapter four, verse one through 11. Peter writes, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of your life or the rest of uh, the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same accesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sober judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if we are going to focus here on, on just 7 through 11 here, Peter's call is basically this. In light of Christ, soon return. The church must glorify God by lovingly serving each other as faithful managers of God's grace. Because Jesus is coming soon, we better get busy lovingly serving each other because that is how God gets all the glory. And as we lovingly serve one another, we prove to be faithful managers of his grace that he gives us. 
So three things I want us to focus on as we look at these verses. Number one is the end. And Peter says the end is near. Number two, we'll look at the aim, the aim. And Peter says that the aim is the glory of God. And number three, he focuses on our duty, on our duty. And the duty is love through acts of service. So first of all, he says, listen, let's get one thing clear. And he says in verse seven, the end is near. The end is near. And I want you to see here in verses seven through 11, these verses here, verse seven and verse 11, they serve as sort of bookends to this middle section that that Peter now is going to exhort them in, okay? So in verse seven, Peter gives them the motivation or the incentive to serve one another, in love. And then in verse 11, he caps that off and he indicates the ultimate aim, ultimate goal, right, of why they should love one another, why they should serve one another. So the motivation in verse 7, and then why do it in verse 11, and right between those is all of this duty. Do this and do that. And he says, first of all, in verse 7, the end of all things is near. And so with this phrase here, Peter summarizes the Christian expectation of the coming Messiah, of the coming Christ, his second coming. He says the end of all things is near. Now the end doesn't mean that something will soon cease to exist or will be abolished or will be terminated. Like it'll come to the, an end, right? No, what it means is something will be fulfilled. It will come to its glorious end, fulfillment, completion. So generally speaking here, Peter is referring to God's plan of redemption. Okay? The reason the end is near is that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have brought in these last days or the last hour, as we find out from the rest of the scripture. As we've been studying right through Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, we, we saw over and over again that the Old Testament that pointed, that we went back to constantly, predicted the coming Messiah, right? Who would save his people and who would restore Israel's kingdom. But what the Old Testament prophets didn't see is that this coming of the Messiah would actually be a twofold coming. It's not like he would come in and he would do everything in one time, but no, there were like these two peaks, right? Christ would come first, right, to save the world, and then his second coming would be to judge the world. And so since Christ's resurrection and ascension, the church has been patiently waiting for the second coming. So the first is fulfilled, but the second coming is yet to come. And so this is what we are waiting for. And this is the period between first and second coming that is characterized in scripture as the last days or the last hour. Look down with me at the text again, first Peter chapter four. I don't know why most translations, they drop this connective particle here that, that, that links verse seven to the previous section. It should read, now the end of all things is near, or, but the end of all things is near. 
So look at verse five. Peter had just mentioned how Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. And Peter saying now, continuing on this thought, now he is near. He is approaching. Jesus could come any minute, friends. The first century, obviously, when you read from, when you read the entire New Testament, the first century church believed that Christ's return will take place during their time, during their lifetime. That's why this theme of this imminent end, the coming, the soon end, is all over. It's so prevalent in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of verses. For instance, Romans 13, 11 and 12 says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Speaking of the day, the coming day of the Lord. Philippians 4.2 or 4.5 says, The Lord, friends, the Lord is near. James 5.8, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Revelation 22.10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. There's constant emphasis, friends, you are living in the last days. So the end is near. But you know, as months turn into years and the years into decades, what usually happens? You just get comfortable, right? You get used to this reality. Christ return is is delayed and and this delay caused some problems in the church even in the first century church we read in the follow-up letter that peter writes to them later on in second peter chapter three that some begin to mock christians by saying where's the promise of his coming You're walking around here saying, I got to repent and I got to do this and I got to trust Jesus because Jesus is coming and Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. And here I am, 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 50 years have gone by. I mean, right now at this time of Peter's writing, it's about 35 years or so since Christ's ascension. And they're saying, where is he? How long is it going to take him to get his act together and come back? And so they're mocking, right? Your God is not coming back. You die. Listen, you die. You Christian, you die just like everybody else dies. What's the difference? What difference does Christianity ultimately makes? All you have is you miss out on the things that you could have fun with. That's it. And for us this morning, maybe some of you guys are sitting here, maybe some of you younger folks, teenagers, you're sitting here and you're thinking exactly the same. Listen, it's been months, it's been years, it's been decades, centuries, 2,000 years have passed, friends, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Well, Peter's answer is just as relevant to us today as it was to them back then. Peter says, listen, friend, what the scoffers don't realize is that God's view of time is significantly different than ours. We live in time. God does not live in time. He's not bound by time. And that's why he goes on in chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3 goes on to say that, listen, for the Lord, a thousand years is like what? One day. 
And one day is like a thousand years. He is not bound by our calendar. But let's get one thing straight, he says. A delayed coming does not mean that he's not coming. Why is he delaying? Why is God delaying? From our perspective, every additional day the Lord delays is only due to his patience and mercy. For Peter goes on to say, God doesn't wish that anybody should perish. That's why he's delaying. He is delaying so that the mockers and scoffers who are appointed to eternal life and who are elected onto salvation would come to realize that Christ is their savior. What is Peter's charge here then to the believers in in chapter one verse, or uh, chapter four verse seven? What is his charge? Is it just to sit around and to figure out the timing of Christ's return? You know, why don't you read the rest of the available scripture and create your own second coming chart, <laughs> right? Publish a book on your new estimate of when Christ is coming and, and, and write why all the other previous predictions didn't make any sense. Is that what he's after? No. He says, don't waste your time doing this. Rather, the soon return of Christ, it motivates you to live in a certain way. Christians who realize that the end of the age could happen at any point should act a certain way. And therefore, Peter writes, therefore, if this is true, if the end is near, therefore, be of sober judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be of sober judgment. Be clear-minded, right? To, to think rightly as opposed to being out of your mind. Don't think like someone who's crazy would. In fact, this, this same word is used in Mark chapter five, speaking of describing the person who is um, oppressed by the demon, who's demon possessed. He is out of his mind, the opposite of this. And he says, be in your mind, think clearly. And then he says, be sober in spirit, be watchful. Don't get drunk, literally, don't get drunk, but be watchful, astute. So knowing that we are in the end time should make us sensible. It should make us level-headed, not impulsive. And why is this important? This is important, Peter writes, because for the purpose of prayer, he says, for the purpose of prayer. You need to be watchful so that you can pray more fervently and more effectively as you wait for the coming of the Lord. This should be your attitude So beloved, are we living in daily anticipation of the return of Christ, staying watchful and and focused in our prayers? Focused on, on this truth here. Are we praying for our families, for our churches, for for our neighbors? As we see our enemy, like Peter will say, who prowls around like a roaring lion in 5:8, seeking to devour us. We should be soberly perking up our spiritual eyes and ears and be in prayer both for ourselves and for one another. As we scroll through our social media feeds, as we listen to the news, as as we see people panicking, we should be clear about what time it is and resort to prayer rather than panic. What time is it? The Lord is near. 
It's time for the Lord to come back, friends. So what is the attitude? Think clearly. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Pray. Pray. The end is near. And if Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead and is coming back soon, as verse 7 indicates, then Peter instructs these Christians then to live in a certain way. He gives various here commands in verses 11 or uh, 8 through 11 that they must fulfill. But then at the end of this section in verse 11, he provides this overarching principle why they ought to do what they ought to do. Peter calls us here to live in a certain way in light of Christ's coming because something very big is at stake. I want you to skip these verses and go to verse 11 real quick. And and we will read the end of verse 11. And here's what uh, Peter teaches here. The aim, if the time or if the end is near, then second, the aim is the glory of God. Whatever he's going to tell us to do, we ought to do this for the glory of God. Because he says, do all of this so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is it. This is why we do what we do. This is the absolute key here in this entire text. The instructions he gives us here in verses 11 through, uh, in verse 8 through 11 rather are very important, very important, because they are supposed to result in the most important thing possible, and that is the glory of God. What can be more significant, listen friends, in the entire cosmos than God being glorified through Jesus Christ? I mean, if you, were, if you were to open your Bibles to Genesis 1-1 and read it systematically through Revelation 22, and if you were to ask an all-important question, why is God doing what he is doing? As he creates the world and then destroys it by flood. As he calls people for himself and rescues them from Egypt gives them the law, leads them into the promised land, and then boots them out. As he sends his son in the human flesh who sacrifices himself on the cross only to be resurrected and to ascend back to the throne of God. As God creates the church and nourishes it and feeds it and grows it, and as the kingdom of God continues to expand from one generation to the next, If you were to ask the question, why is God doing all of this? Over and over, you will find that the answer the scripture provides is he is doing this to glorify himself. And it falls right in line with 1 Peter 4, verse 11. This is why God does everything. The most glorious being, friends, in all reality is God. There's no one more glorious than God. Therefore, the glory of God is then the greatest end. Amen? That's what the scripture teaches, and that's what we are confronted with this morning. Peter is saying, friends, listen, that our service and our love, and frankly, our hospitality to one another, these very insignificant things are meant 
to serve this grand purpose of glorifying God. So this concept of glorifying God is so often misunderstood because we use it like as a, you know, cliche almost in our prayers. God, help us to glorify you, right? Or help him to glorify you. Glorify, glorify, and we kind of throw this phrase around, but what does it mean? What are we ultimately asking? What is Peter here saying? You need to glorify God by opening up your homes and inviting people in. What is he, what are we supposed to do? Well, the Hebrew word for glory means weight or heaviness, which points to the riches and the power or significance of someone, right? And then the Greek word here, doxa, the word that that is translated glory, has this nuance of reputation or honor. Weight, glory, reputation, honor. So when you apply all of these things to God, his glory is his infinite worth. It is the manifestation or display of his perfect being and attributes. And so he says here, look at this, Look with me at verse 11. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom? To whom belongs? And so it is debated whether to whom refers to God or Jesus Christ here. But it's not a big deal because in other passages like Revelation 1.6 clearly attributes glory and dominion to Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 states that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is called the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2.8. So we are to glorify God through Jesus Christ who reveals the Father to us. But ultimately, to glorify God is to show off his worth. That's what we're called to do. That's what our behavior is called to point to, is to show off his excellence, the most beautiful being in the entire creation, to show him off, make his name great. The reason why you do what you do is because he is great. Not you, not not me, God. And so get this. If the goal is to show off the worth and excellence of God, the most beautiful being in the entire creation, what actions would you expect Peter to point to? Right, if this is this exalted goal and purpose, what would you think Peter would say, now go do this? If the aim is the most essential aim of all time and all of all reality, how do we accomplish this goal? What should we be preoccupied with here in this local body? I mean, what would be your answer? I mean, wouldn't you think the answer would be doing something spectacular, some, some grand act of obedience, you know, that would grab God's attention, like, whoa, there we go, that's what I'm talking about. Maybe you would think, or right now you're thinking of great men of God, like, I don't know, Jim Elliott. Do you know Jim Elliott's story? Right, Jim Elliott, he packed up with a few of his other friends and he wanted to deliver the gospel in the uh, Amazon jungles and, and he went there fully prepared to die for the Lord. And that's exactly what he did. As soon as he hit the ground, they got speared to death. 
And so maybe that's what you're thinking, man, that's it, right? This is what, what, what really glorifies God. That'll bring him glory. Or, or maybe you're thinking of, I don't know, opening up this orphanage and rescuing a bunch of kids off the street like George Mueller, you know, saving many souls. And you're thinking that act brings God glory and, and grabs his attention. I don't know, maybe you have this desire to, I don't know, learn scripture, preach, and then go plant a church or something like that. You know what I mean? Grand things. And all of these things are great, absolutely, and certainly if done with the right motive, all of them, they bring God glory. And God used great men of faith to bring the gospel to people and to do amazing things throughout church history which brought praise and renown to his name. Why would you do what Jim Elliot did if it's not for God moving you so that you can declare his worth? You don't go in your name and die. But friends, that is not what Peter has in mind. Here's what he says. Since the time of Christ's arrival is near, glorify God by loving one another earnestly. Uh-oh. That's it, but by welcoming one another into your homes without complaining. <laughs> That's what he has in mind. By using what God gave you to humbly serve one another. I mean, isn't this great? No grand act of obedience, but small, tiny, insignificant, right? Acts of love here. That brings God glory. I mean, we tend to believe that most often, you know, God is after some huge act, you know, huge thing. Whoa, I did this. For, you did this for the Lord. That's amazing. But how many of us could actually pull that off? Not many, right? Here it is in reality, friends. What God actually intends for 99.9999999% of all Christian life to be is really small, just humble acts of obedience to our duties over the extent of our lives. Insignificant or seemingly insignificant things over many decades aimed at bringing him glory. This is what he's all about. The end is near. The aim is God's glory. So this morning, Peter teaches us that this massive and the glory of God is accomplished by just small means and acts of love, which brings us to the third point, the duty, the duty, love through acts of service. Let's return to verse eight. And there are three specific duties that Peter is calling us to in light of this great and glorious aim, the glory of God. And he says in verse eight, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Peter is calling again our attention to the priority of love in the Christian community. Again and again, we face the same reminder, right? It's been, it seems like we're, we're moving from one topic to the next, but we're really always talking about love for the past month and a half, Right? Peter says, keep fervent in love for one another. In, in other words, keep your love constant, ongoing, continual, and intense. It's intense love. Love that does not keep, give up. 
this hard disposition that desires the good of another that keeps going all the time. And no doubt, considering Peter's readers here who are suffering intently, who are under great pressure, right, and persecution, whenever you are pressured by something, it's easy to start taking out your frustrations on those who are closest to you, right? Your spouse suffers the most because of your sin, right? Because he or she is closest to you, and whenever you feel some kind of pressure, this is, you just spill over on it. Same thing happens in the church. Peter says, let your love for one another extend under great pressure. Like an athlete that stretches out as they come to the finish line. Right? Let your love stretch out like this. Fervent love. I'm thinking about our own context here and and our own local church. We've gone through our own trials as a church over the last few years. And and I, I just can't help but but wonder, what if everyone during the last two years made it their goal to love each other consistently, constantly, and intensely throughout our trials? You know, instead of getting into disputes and and accusations, right, unceremoniously departing or reluctantly staying put, What if we practice this kind of love towards one another here? Because you know what Peter says, the outcome of this kind of love is that love covers sin, not just mistakes, not just misunderstandings, no sin. And and think about this, as we consider, right, we just considered right now before the sermon, right, as we consider what we have been forgiven by Christ, and then we look at our annoying and we can sinful brothers and sisters, we can love them because of Christ's love for us. When they sin against us, we can look at the cross and we can say, this is what the Lord did for me when I sinned against them, him, and love others. Man, it's so hard though, right? So easy to talk about, it's so hard to do. There were many times in my life, whether family members or church members, right, who were so hard to forgive, were wrestling with bitterness and all kinds of anxiety on the inside. But Peter here, listen, church, Peter exhorts us to fight the pride that would receive God's love in Christ and then turn away and fail to extend the same kind of grace to our fellow brothers and sisters. He says, this is so inconsistent with the gospel of love. Beloved, here's the reality, that post-fall and pre-glorification, we're in this period, post-fall and pre-glorification, man, we can always find something negative, something to pick at in each other if we look long enough. I don't know, we just need to spend a couple of hours with one another and we will find something negative to pick at. but a a constant, fervent cross regarding love, he says, will cover multitude of sins. So loving each other fervently is one way that we serve one another in the body of Christ. What? What's the aim? Why? Why do we do that? For the glory of God. But he doesn't stop there and he says, oh yeah, by the way, love one another 
not just constantly, but love one another through your hospitality. You know, usually when scripture, New Testament talks about hospitality, it's talking about in the realm of welcoming stranger. That's really what the word is, hospitality, is welcome like unbelievers into your homes, sharing the gospel, opening up your, you know, pantries and, and sharing with them. But here in this context, Peter's focusing on this hospitality that happens within the church, within the church. Christian hospitality is loving others with the things God graciously gave you, like your home, your food on the table, your warm beds if someone is coming into your place to spend the night. Man, and don't you love how honest scripture is? I love it. It's like the Lord knows us. <laughs> he does. He knows us, friends. Why? Because here's what Peter is saying. It's amazing. He says, since I know, church, friends, folks, since I know that inviting people into your home and feeding them and you know, putting up with their little children who, who tend to get into every single box and every single cabinet and, and mess with all your stuff since I know that it may be annoying and will cause a huge mess. He says, stop grumbling. Stop. He knows what our attitude is if we're not walking in the spirit. Like, I just wanted to invite you to sit around the dinner table and here I have to mess with this and clean up after you guys for the next two hours after we host a live group or something. He says, uh, uh, be hospitable without complaint. Don't grumble. Don't grumble. You know, hospitality, Christian hospitality, is not what like Instagram presents hospitality to be especially during like Christmas season, we scroll through, you know, our Instagram or Thanksgiving is coming up. It's always my favorite on Thanksgiving day, you just scroll through and, and, and man, you see just, you know, this family enjoying a warm three course meal, you know, with dimmed lights, music playing in the background and, and everything's just calm and, and quiet. But that, we know that's not real. Hospitality is hard work. The Lord knows it's hard work. And why would we expect the genuine expression of love not to be hard? And so he says here, open up your homes, but don't grumble. It's how you serve one another. I love what one uh, pastor said, our, our tables preach the gospel of free grace when it is surrounded by brothers and sisters freely eating from our pantries. Our living rooms preach the gospel of free grace when we stay up past our bedtimes with a smile and not a grumble to love and serve our brothers and sisters. Our homes preach the gospel of free grace when we treat them as if they were not our own but belong to God. That's what hospitality is all about. And all this to what aim? What are we, what are we aiming for? To be invited to someone's house afterwards? Man, our aim is so much greater. It is, verse 11, to bring glory to God. But then he goes on, and in verse 10 and 11, he highlights one more aspect of our service, right? Love one another through God's manifold grace, through God's manifold grace. Within the fellowship of the church, earnest love for one another is expressed in the use of our spiritual gifts, and we use our spiritual gifts not to draw attention to ourselves, but we do it for the benefit of another and 
Verse 11, what is the another benefit? What's the ultimate aim? The glory of God, friends. He says, as each one received, each one has received something. Each believer, each member has been entrusted with a certain grace. And these are not offices in the church. They are specific manifestations of the spirit who causes us to serve one another. You know, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, we, we don't have the time to go there right now, but if you want to get into this topic a bit more, I really encourage you especially to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter um, uh, 12. But notice even here, Right, as each one received a special gift, if you go to 1 Corinthians, this word gift is likewise italicized. In other words, it's supplied. It's not in the original because the original wording simply means grace stuff. If anyone received some grace stuff, but we, and, and you know, rightly so, the authors and translators, they supply the word gift here right, to, to help us better understand the meaning. But what is Paul's in, P, Paul's in 1 Corinthians and Peter's emphasis here? You know, when we think of gifts, we think of just skill and talents more often than not, right? When we think, like, what are you good at? When determining the spiritual gift, you know, um, we think of what we like and what we dislike, our abilities, our skills. And then based on that, we determine, well, I'm good at such and such, therefore that is my spiritual gift, so then I will go ahead and do that, I guess. But is this Peter's focus and Paul's focus in 1 Corinthians? You know, in those, in those chapters 12 through 14, Paul is not saying simply that, hey, everyone is good at something, therefore figure out and better start doing something. But he is saying this, that the Holy Spirit of God actively works within the church and moves people to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 3 says. The Spirit is the main actor. And the effect of his work, it reaches down into people's lives so that they're giving the grace to contribute to this divine work that's being done in the church for one glory, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual work. It's not just your natural ability or your physical or, or natural inclination to do something. Spirit moves and he enables you. Any kind of service that is done here, whether physical or spiritual, is spiritual work it is inspired by the spirit who is in us moving us to contribute to the needs of the body for the benefit of one another each believer is filled with the spirit of god with grace look at this this manifold grace of god serve one another as good stewards in the manifold grace of god varied grace each of us is a steward or or this manager of the resources God has given us for his glory. And as God's grace is, is richly varied, multifaceted, multicolored, like we're not all doing the same thing in this church, right? We're, we're involved in all kinds of ministries. And so according to his grace or the gifts that flow from his grace, 
Each one is uniquely gifted and equipped to serve in Christ's church. Your ability to contribute to the work of the ministry so that Christ would get exalted is a gift. It is not a right. It is a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? Paul asks. It's a gift. Friends, you and I are stewards of God's gifts and will give an account for how we've contributed to the work of Christ. And Peter goes on and he says in verse 11, whoever speaks, right? He, he goes on and he gives two categories, right? The speaking and the service. And right away, right? When you hear this word, whoever speaks, you, you think of preachers. You think of preachers and you might ask, well, I thought you said these duties that Peter here prescribes are small and they, they are mundane and they're you know, seemingly insignificant. I mean, how does this square with being a preacher? We think of great preachers like Apostle Paul or Spurgeon, right? The Prince of Preachers or George Whitfield. We might think of some great man who testified of God's grace while being burned alive at the stake like Ridley and Lattimore speaking God's word as they're dying. And you're like, yeah, that, they had the gift. They have the gift. But while the speaking gifts, they might include the great men of faith, listen, the, the vast majority of obedience to this text, it is carried out by small-time pastors, by very common, mediocre preachers, preaching sermons to small congregations around the world, which will be forgotten in just a few short years. And yet we are called to exercise this gift according to the grace that God gives so that others would benefit. But obedience to this command is not just reserved to preachers, right? It is when worship groups gather together to lead the congregation in spiritual songs. Thank you, Arthur and the team. That's exactly what you're doing. It is when fathers and mothers teach our kids in Sunday school week after week or other leaders engage with our youth during the week. It's when mothers speak the word of God to their children at home on a Monday or Tuesday morning. It's when you send that encouraging text message with a timely word of scripture to your friends who needs to be uplifted it is when all of us come around and encourage and exhort each other to obey and to love the Lord in thousands of different ways. So, is your gift a speaking gift? Teaching, preaching, singing, exhorting, encouraging. It says, deliver it. Deliver God's word. Let him speak the utterance of God. Speak God's word. Is your gift a serving gift? Is your gift, do you, do you serve? Well, then serve in humility and know that you are able to serve because of God's enablement, by the strength which he supplies. You are not serving by your own power and your own ability. God gives you the strength to carry out his work. What type of work, what type of serving are we, are we talking about? Well, most of it is, is overlooked and unrecognized. I mean, in our body here at Grace Hill, for instance, for a while it was the media team who was hauling and setting up the equipment at Mesa or the Auburn facility Sunday after Sunday. 
right? It's the, it's the faithful men and women of the hospitality team who get up early to prepare hot coffee for all of us here to be ready at 9.30, right? It's men right there behind the, the sound panel and, and flipping slides for us. It's the, the team that administers Sunday school and, and plants and, and invites others to participate in that. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but you see, friends, the glory of God, the love of God in the local church isn't always big and grand and just massive, famous even. God, you know, his enabling grace goes deep and causes us to move to benefit others, and ultimately, the aim is his glory. Do you have one gift or two gifts or three or four? How do you figure that out? Well, you know there are five, or five. There are five lists in the New Testament that list various gifts. And not one is the same, which tells you that there is no exhaustive list of gifts in the church. All are different, right? What we can learn from this is that as the spirit moves in the congregation, as we grow up both mature spiritually to the spiritual manifestation in those individuals, it may change as well from time to time. So you might find yourself beginning to do something one, you know, one ministry and then move up to the next and then move up to the next or move down to however you want to look at it. However the spirit moves and wherever there's a need, he always moves some people to fill that void always builds a desire so that if people aren't serving in any particular area, that he would equip people to do that. It's a spiritual work. So friends, Jesus is coming back soon. What are you going to do? You have a bucket list? Don't come up with one. What is he calling us this morning? Are we living so that others will see how great our God is? Are we loving one another fervently as Christ loved us? Right? Are we loving one another through our hospitality? Are we loving others through the grace that God has given us with a special manifestation of the Spirit in our midst? Friends, let's not let his Come and catch us by surprise. Be faithful in small things and you will be greatly rewarded. Father, we thank you for this exhortation and we just ask that you would move in us and compel us to love Jesus by looking at each other and filling in the voids, Lord, here in the church. You have equipped us with your grace. Help us to not be cul-de-sacs, but help us, Lord, to be avenues through which grace flows to others as we serve, as we love, as we forgive, as we open up our homes, as we do things here on Sundays so that Christ would be exalted, so that it would be more comfortable for his people. Whatever the case may be, Father, I pray may we not sit because if we're believers, we are equipped to serve you. But help us to not go for that grand thing, whatever that grand thing will be. Help us to see the beauty of remaining faithful to Christ in the very small things he calls us to do. And you will determine the extent of it all. We thank you, we praise you, be exalted in this church. In Jesus' name we pray and ask, amen.